If you're a lover of people, you're a lover of history. Because you can't separate the greatness of the person from the context of their time. The great people of history who have steel in their character have had that steel forged out between the hammer and the anvil of their time. That is true of the great military leaders, Lee and MacArthur and Eisenhower and others. It is true of the poets, Poe and Shelley. It is true of philosophers, Pascal and others. It is eminently true of the biblical characters. And Elijah is no exception. And so in the study of the life of this great prophet, I don't want us to miss the hammer and the anvil of his time. Because I want us to see what forged this man into being, how he came to be the kind of prophet that he was. I don't want us to miss the hammer and the anvil of the age in which he prophesied and lived. Someone was saying that one day he took his family on a family outing and he said they were just having a good time, and after a little bit, his daughter came up to him, his little girl, with a fistful of wild flowers. And she said proudly, look how beautiful are the flowers, Daddy. And he, he got them, and he said, where did you find those flowers? I want you to show me where you found those flowers. And the little girl took him far too far from camp. He said, whenever she got me this far, it kind of made me nervous because she could have easily gotten lost. And he said, when she took me to the place where she secured the flowers, just about three steps away was this cliff, this ledge. If she had fallen over it, it would have been about a 50-foot drop. And he said, there nestled in these briars and thorns were these flowers. And as I went to pluck some more, he said, I noticed this big wasp nest in the thorn bush so that the flowers came from the rocky ledge in the thorns with a wasp nest guarding it. In the rocks and the weeds and the thorns of a godless nation and generation, God gave the green light for the birth of a man who lived far beyond his time. And when you see Elijah in the context of his time, you'll appreciate his life a lot better. The, the man said, when I saw where those flowers came from, they were even more beautiful. When you see Elijah's life in the context of this evil age, you'll appreciate his life much more. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we begin the story, we begin the historical journey now, you don't need to turn to that, but let me just tell you that for a hundred years the Jews lived under the reign of three great men. They were not without sin, they were not without failure, but they were great men. And their names were Saul and David and Solomon. At the death of Solomon, after his death, a civil war developed among the Jews, and their kingdom was divided. It became known as the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. I want you to take your sheet and look on the back because I've done some stuff there for you. It became known as the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom had 19 kings in its duration of time. Each one of them, every one of them was wicked to the core. The Southern Kingdom had 17 kings. Nine of them were evil and, seven, and eight of them were good. 
The southern kingdom ceased to be. Their history stopped with the Babylonian exile. And the northern kingdom ceased to be. Their history, the, the, the history of the northern kingdom stopped with the invasion of the Assyrians. Now I want to give you a hint with regard to some Bible study. When you come to 1 Kings and thereafter, in 1 Kings and in 1 Chronicles, when the author talks about Israel, he's talking about the northern kingdom. When he talks about Judah, he's talking about the southern kingdom. And I used to read that sometimes and get all confused because he'd be talking about two kings at the same time. When he talks about Israel, he's talking about the northern kingdom. When he talks about Judah, he's talking about the southern kingdom. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 12, I want to begin to show you the kind of men, the men that Elijah, that preceded Elijah. For Elijah lived and prophesied in the days of the northern kingdom. And I want to show you the men that preceded him. Now, in a minute, I'm looking on the back back of the sheet, I'm going to give you the names of these men, and they're names of kings, and you'll understand that Elijah was, of course, wasn't a king, but he was a prophet, and these prophets prophesied and lived in the reign of these kings. Now, with your Bible in your lap, let's look at 1 Kings chapter 13, beginning at verse 33. And we're going to see the record of the first king. 1 Kings 13, 33. Looking on the back, his name was Jeroboam. After this event, Jeroboam did not return from his evil ways. But again he made priests of the high places from among all the people, any who would be ordained to be priests of the high places. And this event became sin to the house of Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam was the first king who reigned for 22 years, and he initiated idolatry in the land. All right, skip down to verse, um, to, to uh, skip to chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. Now in the uh, green sheet, the name is Nodab. It's really Nadab. Okay. Uh, typographical era. Chapter 15, verse 25. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. There's the king of the southern kingdom. And he reigned over Israel two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. All right, skip to verse 27 of the same chapter. Then Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Ishakar, conspired against him, that is, Nadab, and Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gib- Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it came about as soon as he was king, he struck down all of the household of Jeroboam. He killed everybody in that line. All right? Skip to verse 33. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basa, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel at Terzah and reigned 24 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. 
Alright, skip to chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of, of Hanai, also came against Basha and his household because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam, because he struck it. In the twenty-sixth year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, became king over Israel at Terzah and reigned two years. Look at verse 9. And his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. Now he was at Terza, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Terza. Then Zimri went in and struck him and put him to death in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and became king in his place. Look at verse 15. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days, a long reign, at Terza. Now skip to chapter 16, verses... Now skip to chapter um, 16, verses 22 and following. 16, 22. But the people who followed Amri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Geneth. Tibni died, and Abra became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Amri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. And he brought the hill Samaria from Shemar for two talents of Syria, two talents of silver. And verse 25, And Amra did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. Now, for six decades in all of Israel, there was murder and hatred and idolatry. Now, look at chapter 16, verse 29, and we're going to get to the king who was king during... Uh, uh, Elijah's reign, verse 29 of 16. Now Ahab, the son of Amri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. I mean, this is nothing to him, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidons, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Now, never before in the history of the northern kingdom has there ever been a record or is there mention of a marriage as, as, as there is in the case of Ahab? Now, why is that so? Well, I think it was to, for two reasons. By the way, I believe it was uh, F.B. Meyer called um, Jezebel the Lady Macbeth of the Bible. And this marriage was mentioned between Ahab and Jezebel for two reasons. Number one, she was the dominant figure of the marriage. You talk about henpecked. Ahab... He had this ring in his nose, and Jezebel just, you know, just led him around. She controlled him. And the second reason that the marriage is mentioned is because she was the one who initiated Baal worship. It is a dark day in the history of Israel. Her father lived in the birthplace of Baal worship, and Baal was the god of prosperity and productivity, the god of fertility. And so if they had lands and crops, when they had good lands and crops and prosperity, they went and thanked Baal for it. It was a part of the plan. Now into that kind of context comes Elijah. Oswald Sanders 
has a book called Robust in the Faith. I want you to listen to what he says. It says, Like a meteor, Elijah flashed across the inky blackness of Israel's spiritual night. Elijah appeared at the zero hour in Israel's history. Things could hardly have been worse. But when wickedness develops into extraordinary proportions, God meets it with extraordinary measures. In this case, his method was a man, the rugged Elijah whose appearance was a dramatic and volcanic as his nature. God is never at a loss for a man to match the hour. When the devil seems to seize the initiative, God replies by producing his own champion, endowed with personality and gifts appropriate to the task. Jezebel challenged the existence of Jehovah, and Elijah was his answer. So that there burst on the scene this man, Elijah. Now chapter 17, verse 1, tells us about it. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And here he is, kind of an abrupt beginning, is this man Elijah. I see three factors that tell us a little bit about him. First is his name. Now the name Elijah can be broken down into the Hebrew like this. The word El, E-L, is the, is the Hebrew name for God. Look at the latter part of his name, the J-A-H, pronounced in English, Jah. It is Yah in Hebrew, and it is the word that, that it is the name for Jehovah. And the word Jehovah in the Bible means the self-existent, unchanging God so that you have this combination of words for his name, God, Jehovah. And right in the middle of it is the little letter I. It's the Hebrew pronoun, the personal pronoun for my or mine, so that the literal translation of his name is this. My God is Jehovah. My God is Jehovah. Now he lived in an age that worshipped Baal. And he lived in a time that bowed down in its reverence to Ahab the king. Some even called him Lord. And Elijah burst on that scene and his very name said this, I have one God and his name is Jehovah. Now when you bring a man into a setting that is as wicked and vile as this, that man better have God as his God the unchanging, self-existent God. The second thing about him is, his, is his, uh, the country from which he came. tells us a little about him. He came from Tishba. He was the Tishbite. Now we know very little about Tishba, about the country, but we know that it is a place of solitude. It is a place where people live out of doors. They're rugged people. Every great prophet of God has come from the wilderness. Now this is what uh, Oswald Sanders says about Tishba. The prophet was born at Tishba, a region west of Jordan, but at the time he entered the biblical narrative, he had apparently been living for some time in Gilead, a place of solitude with wild and lawless inhabitants. He had, he had known little of the refinements of life, a suntan sheik, a man of rugged and austere appearance. He seems to have been of humble extraction with no special farm or training. 
calculated to make him a national leader, except that received in the school of God. He is a striking illustration of the power of a great personality. Now, he was a man who comes not from the sophistication of the seminary. He doesn't come from formal training. He comes from the rugged country of lawless people. And he's a rough, sun-tanned man. Notice his style. He just stands before Ahab and says, There's not going to be any rain in this land until I say so. Now, you can have bail or not, bail or no bail. If there's no rain, there's not going to be any crops. And, I, and it's not going to rain until I give it permission. He was a man who stood alone against the world. Uh, sometimes it becomes a kind of a concern for us why Christianity is not having a greater impact. Let me tell you what I think about it. I think the reason why great Christianity is not having a greater impact upon the world is that we don't have enough people who are willing to stand alone for God. Now, there are three lessons of application. I want to give you these, and then we're through. And this is where it's what it's all about tonight. Number one, God looks for special people at difficult times. God looks for special people at difficult times. In the blackness of these days, he wanted a special man, and he found a special man. Now, put your finger right there at 17. I want you to turn to the prophecy of Ezekiel. Okay? Ezekiel comes right after uh, Jeremiah um, in the Old Testament, and, and I'm going to give you a little time to find it. Now, don't punch somebody next to you and say, uh, you look for it, and I'll uh, check the traffic out the window. Chapter 22 of Ezekiel. Everybody turns to that. We're going to be out of here in five minutes. And the scripture says, He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. And uh, you hang in there. You've endured this history lesson. I want you to get this application. Verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, that is, say to the nation, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst. Like a roaring lion tearing the prey, they have devoured lives, they have taken treasures and precious things, they've made many widows in the midst of her. Sound like any nation you know? Her priests, the religious leaders, have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and profane. Oh, how... profaned among them. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and devour, destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them. They've whitewashed over the situation, saying, Thus the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they've wronged the poor and the needy and have, have oppressed the sojourner without justice. And look at verse 30. 
And I searched for a man. I searched for a man among them who, would, who, would, who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me in the land that I should not destroy it. And the saddest word in the Bible, but I found no one. Now, God looks for special people at difficult times. That's what He means when He says, you're the salt of the earth. If, if the salt loses its savor, then the whole uh, system will be perverted and corrupted. And He looks for men who will stand in the gap, who will make up the hedge. Different men and women. Unique people who have a uniqueness about them, who reject the, 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 the system as the system is established, who go completely contrary to the way of the world. He looks for men like that. Is there anybody here like that? He looks for special people in difficult times. Number two, God's methods are often surprising. You would expect God to raise up an army against Ahab and the kingdom, wouldn't you? Or at least, you know, get me somebody from the courts that can make an impression on Ahab. But when he got his man, surprisingly enough, he went out to the wilderness. And he got a man with no formal training, no sophistication. He got a man just as rugged as the land he lived in. And he brought him there. Because the way God does His work is often surprising. Well, now what Paul said when he said that he takes the foolishness of the world as wisdom and, 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 he, and he takes the, the, the foolish things to confound the wise. He does surprising things. Now, it just may be that what you've thought in your mind, thoughts have come flashing to your mind, this is the way we need to do it. You know, no, no, that's, no, we shouldn't do it that way. That's completely... You know, that's out of the question. It might just be that's what God is telling you to do because His way is often surprising. Number three, first and foremost, I want you to get this. First and foremost, we stand before God. Elijah stood before Ahab and he said this. He said, the God before whom I stand. Now that expression is pregnant it has two connotations to it. It's a Hebrew expression that means two things. It's the idea of a servant before his master. The God before, I, before whom I stand, like a servant standing before his master. The people that God uses to change the world, to change a community, are the people who just come before God as servants to a master. Lord, whatever you'd have me do, whatever, wherever you'd have me go, send me. The second idea that's involved in that heavy phrase is, is the idea of the person, the personal experience of, of Elijah with God. In other words, to, to, to Elijah, God was more real than Ahab and Jezebel, the God before whom I stand. It's the picture of one standing before the personality of another, before the person of another. Before whom I stand, this God is more real than Jezebel or Ahab. Is that true in your case? The people that God uses to change the world are the people who know Him in the reality of His existence. Now, we're going to quit there. We're going to have our prayer and be dismissed. 
And next Sunday night, we're going to begin to develop the idea of this great man, his ministry and life. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you that in the midst of difficult times and hostile, in a hostile world, in a wicked world, you always are searching for the unique man who can make a difference. Lord, choose us to change the world. Because I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.